Well, we are returning today to our series in Philippians, so I invite you to please turn there with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up where Cody left off a couple weeks ago. And this is uh, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read for us, beginning in verse 12, uh, but we're going to focus our time on verses 14 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, please bless us now with your Holy Spirit, uh, who alone can illuminate your word in our hearts. Do a mighty work in us this morning through the reading and preaching of your word, this means of grace at work in us by faith. Conform us to your holy image. Help us to be the bright and shining lights that you have called us to be. In your grace, Lord, let it be so. Amen. And well, uh, we heard a couple weeks ago from verses 12 and 13 that we just read again, uh, that we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that is to say that we need to follow God's law, that we need to obey his commands, that we need to live like followers of Christ. Remember Paul's main proposition, to live worthy of of the gospel. That's what that means. But there's a way to follow those directions half-heartedly and with poor motives. If you're a parent of a teenager, you know what it's like for someone to follow instructions half-heartedly or with poor motives. We, we all know what that's like. That's why Paul says in the next verse, verse 14, do all things. That is to say, work out your salvation and, and do all the things that that encompasses and that, that that entails do everything without grumbling or disputing. And if we are being honest, we can approach God's law. We can approach God's law as, as whiny and stubborn children at times. We can follow his commands not with fear and trembling, not with humility and joy, but with grumbling and arguing and disputing. But this is not how we are to approach God's law and his, his, uh, his, his standard and, and what he has given us, how we are to live. That's not how we are to behave. And in fact, there's a lot at stake, not only for our own good, but for our witness in the world. We are called to be witnesses to the world of this word of hope that we have. And what kind of witnesses would we be if we approach this word and we treat every word with contempt? And with grumbling and murmuring and, and arguing. 
the world would see our hypocrisy. It does see our hypocrisy. You see, that's what's at stake. We're called to be bright lights that reflect God's glory and the hope of the gospel in a broken and twisted world. And so I have four points for us this morning. Uh, Sometimes uh, the outline comes easy. Sometimes the outline uh, comes hard. That's one of those weeks. So we got four points. I think it'll make sense uh, as we go along how we are to be bright lights in a broken world. Paul is talking about righteous living. That's what verses 12 and 13 are all about. That, that, those verses govern our passage this morning. But then Paul moves to highlight some things about this righteous living that we're called to do. So first, he expresses an area of concern for righteous living in verse 14. Then the desired outcome of righteous living, verse 15. Third, the, the means through which we live righteously in the first part of verse 16. And finally, finally, the joy that comes through righteous living, the rest of verses 16 through 18. So the concern, desire, means, and joy of righteous living. All right, you guys are with me? Okay, let's go. Paul says, matter of fact, imperative, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. If you had to pick one Bible verse to take out of your Bibles, which would it be? Would this one be somewhere up on that list? Because I, I, sometimes I like grumbling. Sometimes I like being annoying. My wife can attest to that. But when it comes to living worthy of the gospel, how are we supposed to approach that calling? We need to approach it in the right way. But we know that at times this is not always the case. See, these words Paul uses here, they they bring us back to the Old Testament. They bring us back to Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. This is how Israel was described during that time. And we're told repeatedly how they grumbled, how they murmured under their breath, how they uh, grumbled against God using those low tones uh, behind each other's backs, under their breath, uh, just the disgust and the displeasure they had with, with their time in the wilderness. And this is what Israel did. And the similarities are very helpful for us. You see, they had just been saved by this divine miracle of God parting the Red Sea, bringing them through on dry ground, washing away the entire Egyptian army. And then, after God had saved them and delivered them, He declares to them, I am your God, and you are my people. You are my nation that I just saved to myself. And since I have saved you, and now you are my nation, now, therefore, this is what's going to happen. This is what life in my nation is going to look like. But it did not take long. It didn't even take one generation for the people of Israel to grumble against God and what He required and what He desired of them. And this is exactly our situation as well. We're told of the rich salvation that we have through Christ. Paul has just finished Uh, uh, describing one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, this Christ hymn from chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, of what Christ has done, how He humbled Himself, took on the form of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death on the cross, a death for our behalf, was raised to newness of life, was, was raised in His exaltation, and now we have that salvation. Therefore, verse 12 is the natural uh, consequence of that. 
It's what happens next. Therefore, we ought to live in light of what Christ has done. And that looks like working out our salvation in fear and trembling. Always remembering it's God who both uh, is at work in us, both to will and to work for His own purpose, His own glory. But we lose sight of this so quickly, and we, and we grumble, we talk under our breath, as it were. We complain. This was a real problem in Philippi. We'll see in chapter 4 when we get there, uh, Lord willing, maybe we'll get there one day. But we'll see, Paul addresses these two people, Eudia and Syntyche, these two women in the church who were disagreeing. And Paul encourages them. He, he tells them they need to put away their grumbling and their disputing, and they need to agree in the Lord. And it's very possible that this, this disagreement between the two of them had caused divisions in the church. And that people were taking sides. There were divisions forming, grumbling and gossiping happening on all sides between the members of the church. God forbid that would happen. But we know it does. Paul uses a second word uh, here as well. That is, is uh, or the second word he uses is, is uh, unfortunately also all too common amongst God's people. And that's this word for disputing. Uh, it can mean, in a positive sense, it can mean thinking thorough, uh, thoroughly uh, through something and all, in all facets of something to reach a, reach a conclusion. But when Paul uses this word, the handful of times he uses it, he's, he's very clear he has this a negative connotation in mind, and that is to argue for arguing's sake. All right, we know what that is. We know what that looks like. If you're not familiar with what arguing for arguing's sake looks like, just uh, log into Twitter for three minutes, and you will have hundreds of examples of what this looks like. Some of the best marriage advice that Jess and I ever received was uh, from a retired pastor, Sparky Pritchard. He, he was a member of our church in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, just a wonderful man. He and his wife, Kathy, an absolute uh, wonderful people. And over lunch one day, he, he asked us the question that, that he would ask all newlyweds and and other engaged couples and people he'd be doing uh, marital counseling with, and he would ask the question, how many arguments do you think is normal for a married couple to have over the course of a year? How many arguments? Like, I, I don't know, 10, 1,000? I, I have no idea. What's big arguments, small arguments, what are we talking about? And he said, I don't think marriages should have any arguments. And he went on to explain why. He said, husband and wife should not have arguments. They can have disagreements. And sometimes they can have a lot of disagreements. But they ought not to have arguments. And we're not splitting hairs here, but he went on to explain that there's a big difference between these two things. Because an argument involves two parties in which one is trying to be proven right. But a disagreement is between a couple, between those who are striving for unity, striving for the same goal, but maybe disagreeing on how best to get there. So disagreement, even rigorous debate, even, even those things, those are okay, and sometimes they're, they're required within the church. And we ought to disagree, especially over things that are important. The big issues, the big doctrines, the gospel itself, those are not things that we can simply agree to disagree on, but we need to strive after those things. But grumbling and arguing, disputing, 
in these, this sense of the word, it's, it's an unacceptable attitude for the Christian. That's what, what Paul is saying here. This is not how we are to treat one another or to approach God's law. This cannot be the way. We must strive to rise above this kind of, of pettiness and, and self-serving attitude, Paul says. Rather, we are to show the world a better way. And that leads to Paul's second point in verse 15, the desired outcome of righteous living. Notice the purpose statement in verse 15 as he explains his rationale for verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what we're called to be, bright lights in a broken world. So verse 15, it does a lot of work for us here in this passage. This is, this is Paul's desired outcome. His concern in verse 14 is that they would not do anything from grumbling or disputing because if they did, it would hinder their progress in this desired outcome, which is to shine bright as bright lights in this broken and twisted world. All right, another marriage analogy. I have a few wedding and marriage analogies on my mind. It's, it's on my mind because today is actually our one year uh, anniversary we're celebrating today uh, by God's grace. Uh, Jess has put up with me for one year, so please be praying for, for many more years. That. But our pastor at our wedding, Dennis Bullock, our pastor, he preached a wonderful sermon at our wedding on Ephesians 5. We wanted to preach from that passage. It's such a powerful picture of what marriage is and what ultimately marriage reflects and points to, Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. And one of the points he made in our sermon hits right at home with what Paul's desire is for us as we want to shine as bright lights in the world. As he preached through the sermon and regarding the wife's role in marriage, he, he preached so faithfully that the world does not believe in wives submitting to their husbands. It's foolishness to the world. But as he preached so faithfully, we're called to be God's fools. We're called to love his word. And that is true. We must follow God's law. We must do so without grumbling or without arguing, but with joy and with fear and with trembling, with all humility, especially the parts of God's words, God's word that the world loves to mock and ridicule. Because it's when we do so that the world cannot help but take notice. The world will take notice. The world says to us, you're telling me that husbands in your church are to love their wives, to lay their lives down for her as Christ loves the church, to be completely faithful to them. You're telling me that young men and young women are to wait until marriage. You're telling me that we, we can't just look at whatever we want to look at online, that we have to strive after sexual purity and flee from all immorality. And we say, yes, we do say that. And we are all the better for it. You believe that marriage is only between one man and one woman for life, that all other expressions of, of sexual intimacy outside of that biblical marriage are sinful and wrong? Yes, we do say that. And true satisfaction of those desires can only be found in accordance to God's word. 
See, the world will agree with us on the easy things that we should do unto others as we would want to be done unto. That's an easy one to agree with. It's the hard sayings where we are going to shine the brightest when we submit to them with joy and humility. We must stand firm in the divine imperatives of the Bibles. Husbands, love your wives. Sacrifice yourself for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Keep the marriage bed holy and undefiled. Or how about some other hard sayings? Specific hard sayings in our our Bibles that are being attacked fiercely today. How about this one? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Or this one. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, not the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality. The same Paul who wrote some of our most beloved verses in all of Scripture, the same verses we've already looked at in Philippians, he wrote this, these verses as well, these hard sayings. The Bible's full of hard sayings. All written, all, all proclaimed to us through the inspiration of Holy Scripture, of, through the Holy Spirit of Holy Scripture. And so are we going to cherish those verses the same way we do with the others? Or will we grumble against God when the desires of our flesh run into the requirements of His perfect law? Will we do that or will we see these verses of Scripture, see these commands as blessings from a heavenly, benevolent Father? Not for our punishment. These are not for our punishment. But they're for our good. I wish I could go back to my younger self and and just knock some sense into me. That the law is our delight when we are in Christ. That nothing that God requires of us is actually a burden to us because in submitting to Him in totality and everything we have and submitting to Him, He removes the true burden from us. The true burden of sin. And in its place, He gives us His law that shows us the way to live. It's powerless to condemn us because Christ Christ Jesus, He bore that condemnation in Himself. And now it can only be a lamp unto our feet, a light for our path to help us to live a life that is holy and pleasing to Him and a life that will bring about that satisfaction and peace that we so desire. Paul doesn't expound upon this uh, glorious truth in in so much detail in this verse, but it is there, and I want to point it out to you. See how he describes us here in this passage. He says we need uh, to do these things not to become something. He says we do not need to do these things not to become children of God. We do not become children through obedience but rather that is a status already granted to us. And Paul says rather that we are to be who we are already. The difference is subtle, but it is massive and we cannot miss it. We do not become God's children, but we show forth to the world that we are God's children. And it is possible to be a bright light that is, uh, but not be shining forth. You see, rather Paul is calling us to do what Jesus calls us to do. Matthew chapter 5, that we are to be the light of the world, 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is what Paul's desire is for us. That is his desired outcome. And that leads Paul then to the next thing. The third thing Paul says is he gives us the means of righteous living. And this is so important. We are able to do this when we hold fast to the word of life. Verse 16. Our light will shine brightest when it is hooked up to the power source of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul means here in this poetic expression. By by word, he's referring to the gospel message. That is the word. And in fact, the word, capital W word, is is the, the word of God, the eternal son of God. And so the word is the message. The message is Christ Jesus. The, uh, Jesus is the good news. He is the gospel. Are you following me? And what does Jesus bring? What does Jesus, what does the message, what does the gospel, what does the good news bring? What is its announcement to us? It brings life. True life. Abundant life. That is to say, eternal life. And Paul says that it's only when and only by means of us holding firm, holding fast to this word of life that we will be able to be the bright lights reflecting God's holiness and righteousness and peace and love into the dark world that's all around us. And that is a wonderful news for us that we are not doing this out of our own power, but through God. The power source is not the law. The power source is the gospel. The law, the law is the GPS. The law tells us where we ought to be going. What we ought to be doing. But the engine that powers us to go forward is the gospel. The law by itself is powerless to get us there. The gospel is the engine that propels us forward. The gospel says it has been done. Jesus says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So when you're looking to Christ, when you're looking to his cross, it's hard to grumble in those moments. That is what Paul wants us to see, to, to look to Christ, to hold fast to his gospel, hold fast to that word of life, and to, to live there, to dwell there. That's where we ought to live. Some of you aren't living there. And I'm not saying that you're not believers. I'm not saying you're not Christians. What I'm saying is that you haven't moved into the house. You haven't moved in completely. You've been given the key to God's house. You hold the deed in your hand, but you're still standing outside. You're on the porch. You haven't moved in yet. You know the house belongs to you. You know everything is true. You can read the deed. You've read it yourself. You have the head knowledge. You see your name listed there that it belongs to you. But you still think you, you don't believe it. And you think, well, I think God, he actually probably prefers that I sleep outside on the ground. Sometimes we can think that this good news is just too good to be true. Do you know those, those, power, uh, those, those phone chargers 
the power bricks that you get with, with every new iPhone, or, or at least you used to get them until they figured out that everybody already owns like 10 of them already, so they don't need to give you any more, but you have those, those phone chargers. Do you know how much power those, those cheap phone chargers are able to put out? It's not much. It's only, only five watts of power. It's just enough to take care of that small battery in your phone. But if you were to try to plug in something else, a laptop or some other larger device to charge using that, using that charger, it's not going to charge very fast at all. It's not going to work well. And what if you tried to use that to power something else like your microwave or your washer or dryer to power the lights in your home? You, you get the idea. You're saying to yourself, and, and in obedience to God's law, you're saying, I just can't do it. I, I just I don't have the strength. I'm not able to do it. If you're thinking that way, then I have some wonderful good news for you. That you do not have to do it because it's already been done. And you are a child of God. And you need to unplug from that 5-watt power supply of your own efforts. And you need to hook up directly into the power grid that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's when you will shine the brightest. You need to move in off the street. You need to move into the house. You need to rest in Jesus Christ. You need to shine bright by holding fast and holding firm to the power source of the word of life, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when we do this, holding fast to God's word and joyfully and humbly submitting to, to everything that it says, then we will have something to offer this broken and this twisted and this, this dark world around us. We will have something they won't be able to find anywhere else because we have Christ. In Him we have both the salvation from sin and peace with God, and we also have the perfect example of what it means to be human in the person of Jesus the perfect human, the one that we can follow. We have peace for our souls and we have purpose for our lives. And that brings us to the final point. This is the joy that comes from righteous living. Paul ends with some personal reflections regarding everything he's, he's just said in the rest of verse 16 through 18. And we'll need to move quickly uh, as we go through this. We'll, we'll end with this. He says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I, that I did not run in vain or, or labor in vain. You see, Paul desires that they behave in this way, that they, they live in this way, because it will prove to him personally that his efforts have been worthwhile. But you see, he's, he's sure of the outcome. Because he knows who's at work in his church, in this beloved church. And he's going to rejoice. He's going to rejoice again. Even, even in his death, he will rejoice. And he compares his death to a drink offering being poured out upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. There's, there's so much there. There's plenty there that we unfortunately can't uh, get to this morning. But the overall point has been made. He makes it so clear. Jesus Christ, He is the once-for-all sacrifice for the salvation of your soul. That's the message. Jesus is your salvation. Have you believed in Him? Would you believe in Him? 
And by doing so, we offer up to Him as spiritual sacrifice. He being the once for all bloody sacrifice for our sins, we now lift up our spiritual sacrifices of our lives and faith, offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. Offering up to Him the sacrifice of praise that is the the fruit of lips that acknowledge and, and recognize and profess His name. So therefore, let us be bold in our witness. And without grumbling, without arguing or disputing, but with fear and trembling, being holy and blameless, because He has made us holy and blameless through His righteousness, with all humility, with joy, uh, because out of all the people of the earth, we alone are able to rest on a firm foundation. And so let us be those bright lights and those beacons of hope in this broken world. You see, that is what God has called us to be. And it's through His sacrifice, through His Son, who has accomplished it all, who Himself declared, it is finished on the cross. We have the message that says, it is done. Come and find rest. That is what God has called us to be. We have that sure hope. We have that firm foundation as we hold fast to the word of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Rest in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that uh, at times our default tendency is to work out our salvation with grumbling and disputing instead of with fear and trembling. May we look to your word and hold fast to your word. May we seek to live according to your teaching. May all this be done so that we might shine bright in this dark world the way that you have created us to be. May it be for our joy and for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.